Welcome to the virtual seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. These semi-monthly seminars are a regular gathering of faculty, students, clinicians, and others interested in the intersections of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine. For more information and to register, go to tmc.divinity.duke.edu slash seminar. It's a real joy right now to introduce uh, uh, Dr. Alex Lyon and Dr. Ryan Antiel, uh, colleagues at the University of Indiana and, um, and, and friends. It's a real joy to introduce them as friends. Uh, Dr. Antiel is Assistant Professor of Pediatric Surgery at Indiana University School of Medicine. He's a faculty investigator at the Center for Bioethics there. He's a pediatric surgeon, researcher, and ethicist focused on improving the lives of children and families confronted with difficult surgical decision-making and, and end-of-life issues. And Dr. Alex Lyon is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Hematology Oncology there at Indiana. Um, his clinical work focuses on pediatric neuro-oncology and cancer predisposition, and his scholarly focus is on the integration of spirituality and medicine. Uh, he co-directs the uh, Religion and Spirituality and Medicine concentration at the School of Medicine, and he's the Associate Director of the Evans Center for Spiritual and Religious Values and Healthcare at IU Health. And I might add, he's currently working toward his uh, hybrid certificate in theology, medicine, uh, in theology and healthcare here at the Divinity School. And it's a real joy to be walking with Alex this year. Um, these are two wild folks, good folks, and uh, it's a joy to welcome them in conversation. The topic of their conversation today is hoping for a medical miracle in pediatric care and beyond. Thank you both. Thank you so much, Brett. Uh, thank you, Ben, um, for helping to and get all of this organized. Um, it really is wonderful to be with you all. Obviously, Alex and I wish it were in person uh, there in uh, sunny Durham, um, but hopefully uh, soon uh, we can uh, be with you in the flesh. You know, it's wonderful to partner with Alex on this topic. Alex and I frequently discuss cases um, at our multidisciplinary pediatric tumor board. Uh, but today we're not simply talking about, you know, which chemotherapy regimen to use or the resectability of a particular tumor. Um, Alex and I are going to talk about um, something that's at the very core of the patient, core of their family, their communities, their belief system. Now, it's difficult to imagine a more trying situation as a parent than to watch your child suffer from a life-threatening illness. Parents describe just an overwhelming sense of helplessness. And in these dire situations, any reasonable parent is going to seek out help. They're seeking out a, a miracle. Now, for some religious parents, they may seek divine intervention completely outside the walls of modern medicine. For example, we've all heard cases about a parent who maybe refuses, say, chemotherapy for a child recently diagnosed with leukemia uh, because of belief that God will heal the child. A traditional discourse and medical ethics around these cases is going to center on themes of harm, medical neglect, child abuse, limits of parental autonomy, etc. 
In these circumstances, pediatricians often seek legal solutions to override parental authority. Now for other parents, maybe atheist, agnostic, or perhaps even deist, the miracle they seek is really from modern science. And by miracle, I mean to say that what they're hoping for, what they're seeking is a highly unusual or unprecedented outcome from the perspective of empirical science. So these parents, these families hope for the long shot. Could their kid be the 1% who makes it through? But when modern medicine fails to deliver the long shot cure, even agnostics may utter up uh, petitional prayers just in case. Uh, the old adage states, uh, there are no atheists in foxholes. I'm reminded of a powerful um, kind of pseudo-autobiographical work uh, by Peter DeRise, The Blood of the Lamb. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this work. It had, you know, was first recommended to me uh, many, many years ago by Professor Hauerwas. And it follows the life of um, Don Wanderhope from his, I guess, Calvinist upbringing through uh, the loss of his faith and eventually the loss of his uh, daughter, Carol, uh, to cancer. Um, and there's a particularly um, poignant passage um, in the book where Don, having walked past St. Catherine's Cathedral so many times to get from his apartment to the hospital, uh, decides to pay a visit. Um, it's worth just a, a quick read to illustrate um, how in these situations, uh, parents are still drawn to the supernatural. Um, Don says, I walked out past St. Catherine's to the bar and grill and back again so often through so many hospitalizations that I cannot remember which time it was that I stopped in the church. On the way back to sit down and rest. I was dead drunk and stone sober and bone tired, my head split and numbed by the plague of voices and eternal disputation. I knew why I was delaying my return to the hospital. The report on the morning's aspiration would be phoned up to the ward from the laboratory any minute, and what I died to learn I dreaded to hear. I got up, walked to the center aisle, where I stood looking out to the high altar and soaring windows. I turned around and went to the rear corner, where stood the little shrine to St. Jude, patron of lost causes and hopeless cases. Half the candles were burning. I took a taper and lit another. I was alone in the church. The gentle flames waved and shattered in a midst of tears spilling from my eyes as I sank to the floor. I do not ask that she be spared to me, but that her life be spared to her, he prayed. Or give us a year, we will spend it as we have the last missing nothing. For the next couple pages, Don um, pleads um, with a God he's not sure he even believes in uh, to heal his daughter, to give them more time together. And then there's a third category of parents, um, a common category that Alex and I encounter, those with deeply held religious beliefs, but fully utilize modern medicine and within this category, not surprisingly, there's a wide spectrum of beliefs about the overlap of divine intervention, as well as just the gifts of scientific and medical knowledge. 
And it's really from this category that we're going to explore um, a really difficult um, uh, case uh, with you this afternoon. Now, due to our limited time, Alex and I have chosen not to discuss um, conceptual questions of what exactly constitutes a miracle, competing theologies of miracles or philosophies of science. We're not able to present a comprehensive you know, historical survey of medical science, magic, religious healing and antiquity, um, or even to report the most recent empirical trends in physician religiosity or, or religious beliefs. Instead, we'd really like to focus our time on a poignant case and then discuss more practically, uh, pastorally perhaps, how healthcare providers can respond to requests for aggressive medical care while parents are waiting for a miracle. And we fully acknowledge that you know, a hope for a miracle does not necessarily entail a conflict uh, between the healthcare team and the parents. However, we'll focus on a case that resulted in a lot of moral distress, uh, both for the healthcare providers and for the family at various times. We also acknowledge the wide diversity in ways uh, theistic traditions um, have understood uh, miracles. Our discussion uh, certainly fits best within the Abrahamic family of faith traditions, but obviously it's important um, to explore, you know, miracle invocation of other spiritualities expressed outside these traditions. Um, but I think today, in order to be authentic, uh, both Alex and I will speak uh, from the first person out of our own specific traditions. Um, so with that, um, I'll turn it over to Alex uh, to present um, our case for discussion. Thanks, Ryan. And if it is sunny in Durham, it would be nice to be there while Indiana is snowy, on the other hand. Um, I have the privilege of sharing a story uh, with the consent of a dear family of one of my patients. For their privacy, I've changed the child's name to Ben. And we'll start in the patient's room in the hospital. The younger brother sat in the corner of the room playing with miniature Pokemon figures. Ben himself was in the playroom while I spoke to his parents. I showed them the picture of the DIPG, the diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. This tumor is not able to be taken out surgically. Our standard therapy, radiation, will only delay its growth. There is no known medical cure for this tumor, no chemotherapy that's been known to help. On average, children live nine to 15 months after diagnosis. And Ben had presented with focal weakness, which might indicate his course would run on the shorter end of things. We believe you, Doc, his mother said, and we believe God will do a miracle. We believe God will do a miracle by your hands. What would that look like to you, I asked. What does the word miracle mean to you? The father spoke first. I've seen a TV evangelist, a faith healer on TV. I think that's probably not real, but we have a cousin. He lived in Indonesia where we used to live. He had leukemia and there was no cure for him there. His family was bankrupt, but they began to receive money from others 
and were able to bring him to America where he received treatment and was cured. Now he works at Disneyland. I gently explained that in this country, many leukemias are highly curable in children, but this cancer is different. The mother began to ask questions about what death would look like for her son, what symptoms he might have as the tumor grows. I shared what I had seen and heard about in other children with this brain tumor in the ponds, from increased intracranial pressure, children with this tumor lose the ability to walk or to speak. Growth of a tumor in this area would compress cranial nerves, the nerves that control facial expression. And with compression of those surrounding structures, the eyes may cross, he may have trouble swallowing. The pons itself is important for the body's control of breathing. Death may look like losing consciousness and then eventually stopping breathing. I believe you, the mother reiterated, and we still ask God for a miracle. I offered the family to enroll in a phase one clinical trial combining radiation and an experimental drug. In a phase one trial, an experimental drug is given at various doses until the recommended maximum tolerated dose is found. In addition to consent from the parents, the child was old enough for assent and he signed his name for a clinical trial to treat his brain tumor. I asked the chaplain to begin sharing visits with me and the family. The chaplain would sit and listen during our clinic visit and then end our time in prayer. After a few weeks, the school teachers were becoming concerned though. They had a program to keep the child in his classmates' thoughts while they carried on at school by having a stuffed bear in his seat. They were putting together verbiage to share with his classmates uh, to describe why they had the stuffed bear in the seat while he was at radiation. The family doesn't want us to use the word tumor, the school teacher said. They keep calling it his bump, but shouldn't he know what's going on? And we don't want him to be scared of real bumps. I encouraged the parents not to hide what he was getting treatment for. He had signed assent for it after all but they became more restrictive of how we describe things during our visits. We don't want him to be anxious, they said. He's so young. We don't want him to be afraid of death. Also, he doesn't pay attention. I don't think he remembers what you talk about. A few weeks passed and they let go of the restrictions. We had a prayer service for him, they said. The pastor put his hand on his head and asked God to take away his cancer. The boy was surprised at first and asked his parents again about his bump. They confirmed what the pastor said. And the boy said, huh, okay. Now over 220 clinical trials have failed so far to cure a patient of a DIPG. 
and this trial failed similarly. As the tumor progressed, he began to wear a patch due to his eyes crossing. He became wheelchair bound. He especially could not raise his right arm. He was on the border of eligibility for the next phase one trial and the parents were caught in the middle of their decision-making. We don't want him to suffer, Doc, the father told me on the phone, but this is an impossible decision. I remembered the parents talking about their church, and I remember that picture of their pastor inadvertently opening up knowledge for the child, deeper knowledge that he had a brain cancer. So I asked, what are your friends at church saying? The father replied, they say God needs the trial to do a miracle. And what about your pastor? I asked, what does he say? He says that if Jesus is going to do a miracle, it can happen in hospice too. God doesn't need the trial. I could see the parents were caught in the middle and were asking for my guidance. So I suggested he listen to his pastor. They enrolled in hospice and he began to have periods of decreased responsiveness. We received word soon after that he had a vision that Jesus had visited him. He said it was very comforting and we thought for sure he will die soon now. After about six months in hospice, though, we received word that he'd begun to become more alert. Working with physical therapy at home, he began to stand again. He came to clinic and his parents told him, show the doc, show him what you can do. The boy stood up and with a cane walked across the room. I obtained a brain hemorrhage. The solid tumor in his pons had become a cyst and the cyst had collapsed. I went home and felt like I was in a dream. We didn't know what to expect or what to do, so we kept the boy in hospice. While he was in hospice, he became stronger every day, working with physical therapy. Two years later, he was discharged from hospice. He came to clinic and was well appearing, I'll bet with some back pain. I think he twisted it, his mother said. We decided he should ring the bell to say he had completed treatment, something no other patient with DIPG had done in our clinic. A nurse whispered while he rang the bell, now that's a miracle. The next week the back pain became worse and we decided to get a spine MRI. The spine MRI showed the tumor had returned and spread throughout the spinal cord. We obtained a biopsy, and then I gave an oral targeted drug. After it failed, the family and I found it difficult to stop after such a prior dramatic turnaround. I enrolled him in another phase one trial and on the day he was supposed to get his first interval MRI, he had a severe headache and came to the ER. The tumor in the pons had hemorrhaged and his consciousness began to wax and wane. 
I stood at the foot of his bed with his father and the palliative care team while his mother sat at his side. We discussed intubation and CPR. She returned to her earliest statements to me. God will still do a miracle. He needs the tube so that he can do the miracle. We were in silence for several minutes and then I felt moved to tell parts of his story again. We do not have a way to explain what happened, that he lived so well for so long, twice as long as we had expected. Remember your pastor said if Jesus wanted to do a miracle, it could happen in hospice, that he didn't need the clinical trial. Maybe it's the same now. We hope with you for another miracle, and we know it's not up to us if that happens. The tube will not help, though. I know, Doc, she said. It's just so hard. The child died quickly after, although with the best palliative care available and without heroic interventions at the end of life. At about that same month, I was at an ethics conference speaking about miracles parents hope for, how to understand families better, how to provide good medicine in the midst of that, and how to remain humble. And I thought to myself, it's much easier to write or speak about this than to actually be the physician or the healthcare team member in the middle of it. And something about the roller coaster of the story made it hardest than most to think about. I spoke about it with an elder mentor. Maybe death is a miracle, he said. It is mysterious and unexplained. If you've been in the room when someone has died, you know something indescribable has just occurred. Perhaps like my patient's cousin, it's as if he's traveled to another country. The cure does not yet exist in this country, but where he goes, may he find it there. Some families grieve and recover to a greater extent if they maintain contact with their child's pediatric oncologist in those years after the loss of a child. We maintained contact and I spoke to the family last week who still believe their son experienced a miracle to have the extra time we did not expect. And they wanted to share with you their words. His mother's words were, it's okay to hope, but trust God. She spoke about their younger son the little boy who had played with his Pokemon toys in the corner when I was breaking the news to his parents about his brother's brain tumor. They told me he spends a lot of time on the internet reading. He's about 10 years old now. And he says when he's older, he's going to be a scientist who discovers cures for brain cancer. So this situation um, is not uncommon as we um, enter into these difficult uh, circumstances of the families who 
on the one hand, um, have great hope and belief in miracles, but also are trying to utilize, um, often to the maximum extent, the current available um, medical therapies. This can result in some a difficulty for the team, as Alex um, highlighted. These various beliefs the families have will work themselves out in a variety of requests. And the requests can be you know, very different in terms of the level of aggressiveness or invasiveness. Um, for example, one family might request that their priest or their rabbi or pastor um, visit the child in the ICU to pray, uh, to anoint them. Um, obviously, the healthcare team, especially outside of pandemic sort of situations, um, always would oblige for a request like that. Um, sometimes I get a request from a family um, to do one more scan before the scheduled surgery. Let's just check, doc, if the tumor is gone. Um, CT scans have radiation. Um, they're expensive. But most of the time, we accommodate. These kids are getting so much imaging around their um, chemotherapy regimens. Usually, we're able to accommodate without um, too much uh, morbidity. But then there's more aggressive requests. One more round of chemo, doc, or can we start or continue life-sustaining interventions to buy some time? And it's during those cases um, that it's uh, quite difficult for providers. Now, it's somewhat ironic to me that despite the marketing strategies of uh, these quaternary centers as providing hope and cures where others can't, for example, there's a very well-known children's hospital in the Northeast that's motto tout hope lives here. Is it any wonder that uh, families go um, desperate to seek aggressive cares for these places? And it's a bit ironic then when clinicians are distressed when parents demand these sort of last ditch long shot interventions. Uh, but the fact remains that the request framed in terms of belief in miracles um, shouldn't preclude the application of the same standards we use in refusing requests uh, from parents who don't frame uh, such requests in religious terms. You know, under such circumstances, it is justifiable uh, for the team uh, to make a respectful but firm uh, refusal to carry out you know, requested therapies or interventions, uh, irrespective of how the parents are framing the request. Um, when progression of the child's care goes from what some have termed kind of a long shot to a fantasy, um, where the clinically um, aimed end is no longer achievable, um, when treatment will not work, it's at this threshold that it's appropriate not to offer care. It's at this threshold that the team may experience moral distress. Uh, but above all, one should bear in mind that most of these patients and their families who are praying for these cures are not in denial. They're not demanding immoral or rational malevolent uh, interventions. Their faith should be supported. And Alex beautifully demonstrated that. Their faith should never be ridiculed, even when the team is in agreement that the goals of cure uh, is without medical rationale. Now, perhaps what's a more difficult challenge, um, and Alex will uh, speak to this, is um, what do you do in terms of 
uh, intercultural communication where be it patient and medical providers or even amongst ourselves, there's internal conflict about how we see the world. Certainly the TMC program um, and others know well that within the walls of modern medicine, their rival stories exist, um, offering very different accounts of the world. Healthcare providers, uh, nurses, therapists, physicians have been trained and formed in a system that sociologist James Davison Hunter calls functionally positivist. And what Professor Hunter means by this is that science is not merely a method or a tool of understanding, but as an epistemology, it promises absolute certainty about what exists and what doesn't exist, what's true and what isn't true. Hunter uh, in the past has used Michael Bloomberg's famous quote as an example of this line of thinking. Bloomberg said, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, and therefore you can't fix it. So all that matters is what's measurable, what's imminent, and in this way, the sense of mystery fades. So it's this kind of functional positivism that is really the knowledge foundation of a mechanistic view of the body, where the assumption is that the scientific method is the only way that we can understand efficient causes of physiology, disease, treatment, and all of this takes place through empirical observation. Yet there's alternative social imaginaries, right? Many formed in religious communities, which create a space to wonder, to behold, to be open to the mysterious. These communities apprehend the world differently, poetically, aesthetically, spiritually, uh, with a great sense of wonder. There's an openness to the transcendent and the supernatural. So here's the problem. Can a functionally positivist medicine practice a real intercultural communication and care with people who possess a radically different account of the world? And how do we as healers personally reconcile potential internal conflict within ourselves from the competing epistemologies of our own formations? Uh, none of us began our medical training with blank slates. So now um, Alex will kind of turn to the question of how can we seek unity uh, with our patients and also how can we seek unity uh, with ourselves? Asking the question, what is good medicine? That might look different um, in pediatric neuro-oncology. Um, in many areas of pediatric oncology, we're able to cure patients. Um, at the same time as caring for them. And um, those prayers that are, that are asked for, um, medical science sometimes answers that or is the route through which it's answered. But what does it look like to be healthy in pediatric neuro-oncology? What does it look like for me to be healthy? What does success look like in my clinic if I have surrendered my practice to God. And since I've been in the TMC hybrid um, cohort, um, I've more and more asked, what does a Christian imagination look like in the pediatric neuro-oncology clinic? And I'll give my disclaimer, I am not a theologian. 
Um, but I, I am thinking about what are some beginnings of a theology of practice in my clinic. And I'll just share a, a few brief reflections on that. Um, I see at the center of it is the cross of Christ and the outworking of that in atonement and reconciliation. So what do I mean by atonement and reconciliation in pediatric neuro-oncology or any area of medicine for that matter? I mean that there is a potential divide between parents and the physician. We are formed professionally as physicians, as healthcare workers, to base our decisions on rationality and measurement. After all, it would not make sense for me to put in my assessment plan, we are going to have a miracle. That is the plan. I find that parents more often though, base their, division, their decisions on revelation or mystery, especially when science has no answer. There are potentially two cultures in the clinic then. And as the Valbonis have written, there is potentially a hostility between the two. A starting place towards reversing this, moving from hostility to hospitality, would be to know the patient more. To ask questions like, what does the miracle look like to you? What does spirituality look like for you? And there's even a pragmatic reason for physicians to do this. Um, if you take the analogy of a Chinese finger trap, where at the end of life, there is this tug of war um, possible between the healthcare team and the, uh, the parents, learning to ask questions about faith background or spirituality early in the relationship is like a preemptive ethics intervention. It prevents something I witnessed in a colleague's case whose patient's mother told them, you have your science, I have my faith. The finger trap is escaped not by pulling farther away, but by bringing the two closer together. And in the Christian faith, there is perhaps no event in recreation more powerful than the cross on which Jesus Christ died. The Apostle Paul speaks of this atonement or at one in at least two passages, Ephesians 2, 13 through 22, and Galatians 3, 28 through 29. I'll read just an excerpt from Ephesians 2. And as I read this, bring to mind the physicians, the healthcare team caring for these children, doing their best to provide good medicine, and the parents hoping for a miracle. It says, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. You also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So I see and I hope for and align myself with the work of the Holy Spirit to deepen peace between physician and parent. 
at the end of life for a family who is hoping for a miracle, good medicine does not necessarily mean the patient receives a miracle. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're cured. It also doesn't necessarily mean that the family agrees with everything um, that the healthcare team would wish for in regards to limitations of care. But instead, good medicine may look like peacemaking. And as I do this, I recognize that mystery and reason as ways of knowing are not only these two cultures out there, but they are two capacities within me that are at some times at war. Medical education in the Western world as a whole has done a lot to strengthen my ability to know through reason, to be able to measure, to be able to um, use empirical ways of knowing, but it's done very little to strengthen my ability to know through mystery or revelation. I not only need the reconciliation between me and the other out there, I need this reparation of a breach inside me. And that puts me in a place of humility where my patients and their families have a lot to teach me through their faith and their experience of mystery. And so listening to what does the family think of as the miracle, listening to what does spirituality mean to them, it's not only a pragmatic means to an end to convince them to follow my instructions. It's also a means for me to listen to their story and to learn from it. As Christians in healthcare, we have the opportunity and privilege to be a bridge between two ways of knowing, a bridge between reason and mystery. And the work we do has a foundation in what Jesus accomplished at the cross. And from that ministry of reconciliation, we are given the ability to be co-travelers with these families in a journey into the mystery. Thank you both so much for that just really rich, um, really uh, potentially fruitful uh, case and, and analysis. I, I'm excited to, to continue learning from you both in conversation with our guests. So I, I'll invite um, those of you with questions to uh, raise your hand and we'll get you to, if you're willing to turn on your video and audio and, um, and ask a question. I'll start with uh, uh, Benjamin. Hi, can y'all hear me okay? Hi, as Benjamin Long, I'm coming to y'all from Anchorage, Alaska, so also expectedly waiting for some warmer weather. Um, my question is, we y'all spoke a little bit about the family's spirituality and engaging that, um, but I was interested in maybe how you engage um, discussing that with the patient himself, especially around uh, the fact that when it was disclosed, his reaction of kind of just being like, huh, okay, thank you.
Alex, do you want to, uh, you can speak to this particular um, circumstance, but uh, to Benjamin's question, um, more broadly speaking, outside of this case, um, I think that's a, a fascinating line of inquiry, um, something that often gets overlooked um, when we focus on uh, the decision makers. And sometimes we overlook um, both in the beginning of life and end of life, um, the faith and spirituality, the hopes, the fears um, of the patient themselves. Um, but yeah, I'm curious, um, Alex, if you were able to have uh, conversations with this particular patient and um, what was uh, gained from those. Yeah, and it's a great question in pediatrics. Um, many of the spiritual assessment tools that are available in healthcare um, are really geared towards adults. And there is a sense of whole family care um, that asking those questions of the parents is very important. Um, and I think for the children, what I'll say is, I'm gonna shout out to the pediatric chaplains I work with, that um, the kinds of ways that elicit what does spirituality mean for a child include things like play, things like um, reading stories together, bibliotherapy, um, it can be music. And there are children at early ages, I've seen even at six years of age, that are able to cognitively describe what they believe. And for instance, one eight-year-old was holding his mom as she was crying when I was sharing the results of an MRI showing progression. And he told her, don't worry about it, mom. I will be with Jesus in heaven. And um, I think that some of those um, early formations of spirit can be overlooked. Um, and, I, and I really think that the very young children may experience that. Um, I hope that answers some of the question. Thank you both. Uh, Brittany. Hi, um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, it's great to see you. Nice to see you. Um, my name is Brittany. I am actually a, in my last year of pediatric chemonk fellowship and also an ethics fellowship, and I'm out in Seattle. And Dr. Antiel, I was struck by your comment um, coming from a place where our sort of motto at our institution is hope, care, cure. And so I think um, I have a couple of comments and then maybe one question. I really appreciated this conversation and I think um, highlights a lot of things I've been thinking out about during my training over the last couple of years. I think one, I um, really found that this finger trap analogy felt really fitting in my experiences so far of being able to draw in close to what a family's experience is. And then um, after that, feel sort of a relax of the moral relaxation of the moral distress of the team. I think one question that I'm sort of left with in this conversation, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, um, thinking about coming from a place where we have a, a lot of phase one trials for um, some of the cancers you've even mentioned, I'm I'm interested in thinking more about in what ways our medical system is almost dependent or our, I guess our scientific teams are almost dependent on this family's belief or hope in a miracle in order to advance science and in order to sort of 
progress some of these cures that we've been able to develop specifically in pediatric oncology. And I say that in being the oncology fellow on call in the middle of the night several times when families have sort of miraculously made their way to Seattle from another country or another state seeking this miracle of a phase one cure, um, knowing from a scientific perspective that the purpose of these phase one trials are to determine you know, feasibility or toxicity. And I think in, in what ways can we reconcile almost the medical system's dependence on this family's hope for a miracle and at the same time, the scientific knowledge or our own belief in what a miracle may be from these trials. So a little bit vague, but that's what I'm left reconciling with. Um, wow, uh, fantastic insights, Brittany, lots to unpack there. Um, uh, it could be a whole nother hour discussion. Um, you raised some really important things. Um, modern medicine, um, the research endeavors, all kind of um, motivated by this technological imperative that things will, things must get better and science will um, uh, eventually save us um, is very real and palpable, right? And you're absolutely right. We rely on um, the hopes and the trust of these families in order to um, continue um, the practices that we find ourselves in. And it can be somewhat uncomfortable. I'm sure you've experienced this uh, just as much as I have. I know Alex has, where um, there is therapeutic misconception, right? <laughs> You're like, this particular trial, this particular drug is not, the primary aim is not to help your child. If that happens, we're delighted. Um, but this is part of the larger scientific endeavor. We're trying to find out dosages and side effects and things like that. There's some providers, many providers who are extremely compassionate, take the time to really communicate those things to people. But in general, the system is such that a lot of times these families get pushed through, sold on the hopes of fancy marketing and um, nice commercials and websites um, that there's, you know, a, a cure is, is truly available. So part of our job, I think, as healthcare providers, when people are seeking this out is um, to tell the truth, right? Um, to tell the truth about our limitations, about our weaknesses, about what we are trying to learn, about what they can expect, um, and about our willingness to walk with them uh, through that journey. Um, Alex, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I don't, I, I regularly share with families the truth about phase one trials and DIPG. I mean, 225 trials, there's probably more now. That was a statistic from a few years ago. Um, and yet, I think there's also an acceptance, a grace that for most families, this is still part of their journey. Most families still choose that. And um, I don't see myself as there to sort of sort out, you know, their conception of a miracle. Um, but I do think there's a process of discernment um, in, in what they choose. And that I, I play a role in that as well as sometimes as in this case, um, their faith community. And um, so that's one piece. The other thing I'll say is, 
I, uh, I was at this meeting a month ago with a group from Seattle about CAR-T therapy, um, immunotherapy in brain tumors. And I remember watching this group of scientists talk about the science of it. And there really is a scientific march forward in some ways. And um, I, the thought that came to me as I was watching them talk was, if they had a breakthrough in science, that could be an answer to the prayers of many, many people who have been praying for that. And so I'm also open to that mystery that even in the science, um, there may be a kind of move of God in that. Um, I think it takes discernment. Thank you both. And thank you, Brittany, for an excellent question. How, how to tell the truth in those situations is, yeah. Uh, Warren. Hey, thanks. It's so good to see both of you. Thanks so much for these stories. And I'm uh, to be a minute to get unmuted. Uh, I'm really moved by the, especially the case that you described, Alex, and also by your comments afterward. And when it comes to questions of uh, where, as you, you illustrations where faith and medicine seem to be kind of pulling apart from each other, I'm always aware that there are so many other factors sometimes that are, that are wrapped into someone's affiliation with a particular faith tradition, especially around culture and race and ethnicity and historical experiences, not only indiv as individuals, as a family, but as communities uh, with the healthcare system. And that, that can, things can get sometimes uh, attributed to specifically like theological or faith-based differences when they actually are that, but also part of a much broader set of experiences. And, and I guess I wonder, how do you, how do you address that? How do you, how, when that, when that arises in your, and, you, and they're feeling some kind of a tension between uh, what somebody's asking for and what would seem to be the recommendations of a health system. Um, how do you address these broader contexts that go beyond somebody's like, specific religious affiliation or theological beliefs? You know, one thing that I found helpful, Warren, um, and, um, folks like Alex and the pediatric oncologists do this remarkably well is um, in the busyness of our daily schedules, finding time to welcome in not only um, the family, but um, community members, religious leaders. Um, Alex illustrated in his case, um, he was certain to make reference and ask, you know, what are people telling you and whatnot? But I think um, you're spot on that, um, these are multifactorial and um, go deeper um, beyond just, you know, a particular, you know, philosophical or theological belief, but are really ingrained in the communities and the practices that these people are coming from. So as much as the modern hospital um, is, you know, a very sterile and um, you know, alienating place, uh, as we can, best we can work towards um, welcoming um, the familial community context into these conversations, I found to be um, incredibly helpful as we 
um, distinguish other uh, factors that are uh, contributing to, say, um, a request for something that the medical team uh, doesn't find uh, in the benefit of the child. Uh, Alex, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, one thought I, I had was um, for some families, I, I really think there's a point at which um, it doesn't reside in me to, to discover the answer. And I think there is a point where ethics consultations are really you know, needed. And um, some of that is parsing culture and religion. I also think about um, a professor from our Department of Religious Studies who, who in their view, shared um, religion is culture in some ways. And I think about that with the diversity of approaches to the quote-unquote miraculous within even the Christian faith, that there do, I, I do see some differences in, in cultural perspectives in that. Um, I think that something that's helped me is to, um, and helped our team is to actually find people who mirror the culture of the patient. Um, I think it calls for part of the need for a diverse healthcare team. And sometimes that's meant um, asking for help from the EVS worker um, or in an interfaith setting, um, talking to my colleague who's Muslim and you know, the patient may be telling them things that I have not heard and probably will not hear you know, from anyone else. So. Thank you both. Uh, Mariana. You're, you're still uh, muted. Okay, you can you hear me now? Thank yes. you. Thank you for the wonderful uh, uh, presentations. Uh, it was very insightful. Um, my, my question for both of you would be, related to, in some ways, the paradigm of today modern medicine between medical knowledge and healing. Um, so uh, the way how we're trained that medical knowledge becomes healing, is it's not quite the reality. So um, uh, my long-term reflection as a trained physician and uh, longstanding patients in modern medicine is that in fact, medical knowledge are just a vehicle to ensure ourselves that we're not doing mistakes, but that the healing, it's much more complex than just medical knowledge and does not necessarily belong to medicine. Although we claim uh, it belongs to modern medicine. Um, so I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on that <laughs> and on that um, paradigm and um, very nicely put by Alex, you know, between reason, I really like your uh, um, comments on reason and miracle and how reason didn't teach you <laughs> the inside of miracle. I feel very much in the same way with my patient experience of longstanding patient experience. But so I wonder, um, how do you 
deal with this paradigm in your patient relationship and um, from an ethical standpoint of view, more so. And um, how do you approach this? <laughs> this is, you know, so it doesn't appear, is that it appear a limitation, uh, but it is a limitation. So how, how do you really approach this? Yeah. If you could comment a little bit on this. Thanks for that great question. I'll ask uh, Alex and Ryan to be, to be brief, recognize in the hour. Thank you. I think it goes back to humility and to recognize that um, I may be part of the healing process, but I'm not, I'm not the healer. And there are many resources that the family has that um, may be more powerful in their context than simply what they get in the hospital. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, thank you all for being in attendance. Thank you, especially Dr. Amtiel and Dr. Lyon, Ryan and Alex. It's so good to hear from and learn from you both. Uh, I hope everyone in attendance will consider joining us in two weeks. Uh, on uh, March 4th, we'll hear from Dr. Jenny Weiss-Block. Her talk is entitled Side by Side Towards the Spirituality of Accompaniment. But uh, uh, I hope you'll join me in thanking uh, our guests on our way out. Thank you all. Thank you.